You know how normally um, when I get up here I tell a story? I'm not doing that tonight. I'm going to go straight into it. Uh, this is number five in the uh, Show a Little Legacy series, and it's called Scum Discipleship. And so we're going to start off with Jesus' words. Uh, good reason to pay attention. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Of course, this is post resurrection Jesus. He'd been with them for 40 days or something, for a long time, teaching them in his resurrected body. You know, walking through walls, appearing, disappearing, things like that. It was pretty darn cool, okay? So they see Jesus at this mountain where he told them to meet. And uh, they saw him, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. And that's like one of my favorite, favorite lines in the whole Bible. <laughs> like, what's a guy got to do <laughs> to cause some faith to happen in people? Like, what more can you do? Then rise from the dead and walk around in a resurrected body for weeks. But some doubt it. And the reason I like this verse is because it gives me hope. Because sometimes I doubt. Didn't seem to bother Jesus much at all. Verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now you would think that Jesus' parting words before ascending back into heaven would be His most important words that He wants to leave. His legacy series, so to speak. And... Um, he talks about making disciples, discipling, discipleship, although discipleship is not a word you'll find in the Bible. You know what it means. I know what it means. I think part of the problem that the church has with these parting words of Jesus in terms of us really doing it effectively paying attention to it, is that He said it wouldn't be easy. For example, in Matthew 16, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him or her deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Me. Well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Luke 14, And whoever does not bear his or her cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. Huh. All of a sudden, discipleship sounds a whole lot more difficult than it did when Jesus said goodbye. You see, the cross means to identify with Jesus in His rejection, in His shame, in His suffering, in His death. To take up your cross does not mean to carry your burdens or your problems. Your asthma is not the cross. The job you hate is not the cross. Your moodiness that you have to deal with is not the cross that you have to bear. The cross 
is when you are being persecuted for following Jesus. That's the cross. That's discipleship. That's why it's so difficult for us. So the American church has usually seen discipleship as this discipline. I mean, discipline is in the word, right? That we must endure. Kind of think of it as a boot camp if you were in the military. It's a set of things that we all need to get better at. So we come up with discipleship programs. We come up with discipleship study guides. We come up with discipleship retreats. Sometimes we have a whole discipleship training school that goes on for months and months and months. And these are all good. Really. They're all good. Got no problem with that. I mean, I think that discipleship is really important enough to work hard at. There's a quote by a guy I never heard of before I started studying for the sermon, Neil Cole. This is a great quote. He says, ultimately, each church will be evaluated by only one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as her disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumeristic, and not radically obedient, your church is not good. I just love the way he adds that quote. Your church is not good. Neil Cole, from Search and Rescue, Becoming a Disciple Who Makes a Difference. Now, the trouble is that we at SCUM, over the last 19 years, have never been really, really good at program. I mean, we have too many artists too many musicians, too many poets, too many writers, too many rebels with and rebels without a cause to really get into the programs. We're, you know, we start out great, all these people will show up, and after five meetings, it's like 20%. So, how has SCUM been able to accomplish discipleship for low these 19 years. I'm going to tell you a little story. Hopefully, you'll listen by a guy named Barry Cooper. Imagine a dancer. She's dancing with grace and with joy and with rhythm. As you look closer, you see what drives all this beautiful movement. She has your earbuds in. And she hears the music that she loves best in the whole entire world. And it's transporting her. She's captivated by the music. She's enthralled by it. And it's almost as if she can't stop dancing. Now imagine another person walks into the room. She looks at that dancer and she says to herself, I would love to be able to dance like that. Trouble is... She has no earbuds, and she can't hear the music. So she does the best she can to try and copy the moves, the technique. And actually, it seems to be working, at least for a while. But because she hears no movement of the music, her dance is kind of awkward. It's kind of clunky. 
It's hesitant. It's a little self-conscious. She doesn't seem to enjoy the dance as much as the first dancer does. Before long, the second woman is exhausted. And while the first dancer is still going strong. Sometimes I think that a lot of our well-intentioned discipleship programs and regimens are actually forcing people to be that second dancer. We're telling them to copy all the right moves. Read your Bible every day. Better in the morning. Get up early. Pray. Go to church. Join a small group. Go to Bible study. Oh, and share the gospel wherever you are. All the while, the church is doing relatively little to help them hear the music. To hear the beautiful music that is actually the motivation for doing it with enthusiasm. For doing it well. That music, folks, is the love of Christ. That's what compels us. If you don't feel like Jesus loves you, if you're not in love with Jesus, all that other stuff is really kind of drudgery. I mean, I know, I remember the distinct difference before I believed and after I believed. The Bible was like a new book to me. I couldn't get enough of it. I took it to work on my breaks. I was reading it. People thought I was nuts. It was exciting. It was like God had written a letter to me. And all of a sudden, I was in on it. I don't know how to explain it. So the question is, for scum, is how does the love of God become the program for discipleship. Got two images here that I think depict the way discipleship has occurred as scum for 19 years. The first one is a mother nursing her child. I mean, look at that face. She is so in love with that child. She can't think of anything else. It's like the rest of the room just fades away into a Gaussian blur. Interesting thing about newborns, they can only see about 12 to 18 inches away before things start getting fuzzy. Did you know that? Perfect distance for gazing at the mom. And this photo of a father putting his arm, his hand on the shoulder of his son, obviously having a conversation. It's intimate. It's tender. It's encouraging. It's invigorating. These are the pictures of discipleship at Scum of the Earth for 19 years. Let me explain. Go to the Apostle Paul. Instead, we were gentle among you, 
The word gentle there is actually um, a Greek word that means we were like children among you. In other words, we weren't powerful. We weren't overbearing. We were, we were gentle like little children. Instead, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Did you know that scum started in my living room? It didn't start in a building someplace. It was February 2nd, 2000. We had invited people from the Five Iron Frenzy Bible study over to our house for a meal. Mary made a groundhog. It was actually ground hog. I think it was like ground pork and ground beef that she put together in the shape of a groundhog. It was like a meatloaf. And then she put like the things a groundhog would eat around it, like there were carrots and turnips and potatoes and whatever, you know, and then that was in the oven, and that's what we had for dinner that first day we started talking about the possibility of having a church. And we sat around the table and we ate and we laughed and we joked around. If you know anything about that crew, they were hilarious. All in their 20s, by the way. Mary and I at that point were in our mid-40s. I don't think a lot of those people had had a home-cooked meal for a long time. Because they were living in four and five to an apartment or a house, eating ramen, mac and cheese, pizza, whatever. We invited them into our lives. And then we started talking about church. What would it be like if you were going to create a church where you'd feel comfortable coming and where you'd feel comfortable bringing your friends, what would that church look like? And so this place emerged out of those discussions that happened, you know, several times. We didn't really have our first service, I think, until maybe the first week in April or the last week in March. I mean, we were just meeting in our house having dinner. And then after dinner, that first night, February 2nd, 2000, we, uh, we watched Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. And that was fun. And then everybody got up and left and went to a concert. And Mary and I looked at each other and we thought, you know, nobody volunteered to help clean up at all. Like the dishes are still stacked up in the kitchen. I guess we're going to clean them. And that happened almost every time. I mean, there were a few people that would stay back every now and then to help with the dishes. But not many. We were delighted to share with a bunch of 20-something skater punks not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. I have I've hardly ever talked about this 
but I'm going to tell you because you need to know. Just when scum was starting, I had been laid off from my job at uh, a Presbyterian church as the young adult and singles pastor, and so I was unemployed. Um, I went to work at the United States Postal Service because it was around the holidays. And I, and I worked there, just slinging boxes around. I started raising support. Beginning of the year, I started sending out letters. And um, because people had offered to support me even before I sent out letters, I had at least a part-time salary fairly quickly. I never charged scum of the earth for my services for years. Mary and I just did it. People would send the money into um, the Alliance for Renewal Churches where I was ordained. We were not a burden to young people who really couldn't afford. I mean, our first... I remember our first search service, I think the offering was $5. <laughs> you know, scum has never, ever supported me fully. Ever. There was a time when the Scum Council, this is after several years, they said, Mike, we're going to start giving you something for the offering. I said, no, no, we can't afford it. And the response was, we can't afford not to give you something. So at least let us give you part of your salary. And so I took it. Boy, was that nice. But it was years and years. And everybody who comes on staff raises support too. I mean, frankly, you don't pay for the staff. The staff is not a burden to anyone here. We just aren't. And that's one of the beauties of Scum of the Other for 19 years. Let's go on. Verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Um, I don't think this needs any explanation. I am old enough to be your dad. But besides that, that's what my job has been. That's what the staff's job is. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. One of the greatest compliments that scum of the earth has ever received over 19 years consistently is that you guys stand on the Word of God. You don't mess with the Word of God. You trust the Word of God. You preach the Word of God. You try and live the Word of God. You don't water it down. And you know what? It's true. One of the greatest pleasures of my life was when this one young guy came back. He was gone for a while doing something. I don't know. And he visited other churches. And he comes back and he says, Mike, because you wouldn't believe the sermons at this place. 
I go, well, tell me about it. He would say, well, the pastor would read the passage and then he would never go back to it. He would just talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. And I'm thinking, yes! He has been trained in just a few years of coming to scum that the Word of God is what you concentrate on in the sermon and that's where the authority comes from from the sermon, not from the person who's standing up front. All right. I want to read this in the message because I think it's pretty cool. This whole thing, once again, except the different translation. We weren't aloof with you. We took you just as you were. We were never patronizing, never condescending, but we cared for you the way a mother cares for her children. We loved you dearly. Not content to just pass on the message. We wanted to give you our hearts, and we did. You remember us in those days, friends, working our fingers to the bone up half the night, moonlighting so you wouldn't have the burden of supporting us while we proclaimed God's message to you. You saw with your own eyes how discreet and courteous we were among you with keen sensitivity to you as fellow believers. And God knows we weren't freeloaders. You experienced it all firsthand. With each of you, we were like a father with his child, holding your hand, whispering encouragement, showing you step by step how to live well before God who called us into his own kingdom, into this delightful life. And now we look back on all of this and thank God an artesian well of thanks. When you got the message of God we preached, you didn't pass it off as just one more human opinion, but you took it to heart as God's true word to you, which it is, God Himself at work in you believers. I mean, this is the way that Jesus loved the disciples. Tenderly. Like a mother with her newborn. Like a father who encourages. That's what Jesus did. He didn't charge them for His services. He loved them day in and day out you got to wonder how beloved the disciples felt by Jesus if they were willing to die for Him. A disciple in the New Testament is simply a Christian. Acts 11, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Discipleship is a process. To be converted, baptized, taught to obey all that Jesus said, and then to disciple others. That's what the word to disciple means in the New Testament. And it's all based on love. All of it. So, committed to people's growth here at scum of the earth. Hence the ascending order of chucks on the slide. Let's talk about discipleship, what it's like for a minute. Because it's one of those words that's difficult to, uh, to really grab onto. 
This is going to be difficult to put your mind around for a second, but discipleship is both carefully active and eagerly passive. Discipleship is both carefully active and eagerly passive. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13 goes like this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, to will and to act in order to fulfill your good purpose. Now notice, it does not say for you to work on your salvation, but to work out your salvation. We are saved by Jesus' work alone. All right, you had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with that. It's a free gift. We are saved by Jesus' work alone. But working out your salvation means that spiritual growth doesn't just happen once you are saved all by itself, even if you attend services regularly. Churches are filled with people who have attended for their entire lives and still are spiritual babies. One time in the book of Hebrews... The writer chastises the congregation and he says this in chapter 5. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again because you need milk and not solid food. In other words, you have not participated in working out your salvation. When you're saved, Jesus' work is sufficient. But you didn't work on it. You're still babies. So, you can be in a church and not be far along in your discipleship. Now, just to make it more confusing, let's go to Galatians 5.5. 5, eagerly passive. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Let me say that again. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So how does one get righteous? What does one do in order to have a righteous life? What do you work harder at? It looks like you work harder at waiting. Eagerly waiting. In other words, God is saying, you can't produce righteousness in yourself. I have got to do it. We've got to work at this thing. You've got to let me in. Anybody here ever gone to a 12-step program? Don't raise your hands. 12-step programs understand that verse. The 12 steps were created by Christians. They understood what was going on and how righteousness came to be. It's not from yourself. It's the higher power working within you. That's discipleship. Second thing, besides discipleship is carefully active and eagerly passive, is discipleship happens in the context of fellowship. This is always true. Hebrews 10, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loving good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing on Super Bowl Sunday, but are encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. I'm sorry, the Super Bowl Sunday part wasn't in there. I just slipped out. Scum of the earth, successfully thumbing its nose to American culture for 19 years. 
So, how does this happen? It seems there's no limit to the way a person can be told the good news of Jesus. I mean, you can tell all kinds of different people in all kinds of different ways, right? As far as training Christians to feel and act as a Christian, that means discipling them towards more and more maturity, there happen to be a whole lot of ways that are listed even in the New Testament. Let me just go through a bullet list. Titus 2. Older women are to train younger women. 2 Timothy 2. Paul trained Timothy to train others to train others. Ephesians 6. Fathers are to train their children. Matthew 6. Missionaries are to teach the nations. Everything that Jesus commanded. Hebrews 3. All Christians are to exhort each other every day to avoid sin and to stir up each other to love and good works. 1 Peter 4, all Christians are to use their gifts to serve others. Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, on a spur of the moment it seems, explain the way of God more accurately to Apollos, and then we could go on and on and on. Every Christian should be helping unbelievers become believers by showing them Christ. That's making a disciple. And every Christian should be helping others who are believers to grow to more and more maturity. That's making disciples. And every Christian should seek getting help for themselves and for others to keep on growing. It doesn't matter if you're the disciple or if you're the discipler. The goal is the same, and that is becoming more like Jesus. Spiritual maturity is demonstrated by behaviors, by beliefs. It's not just a matter of creeds and convictions, though it is creeds and convictions. You need to learn the creeds and convictions of the Christian faith, but you also need to develop the content, the conduct, and the character. Right? There's a lot of C's in there. The point is, is that God wants us to take on the character of Jesus. He wants us to learn to forgive like He forgives. To love like He loves. Because He's a God of grace, He wants us to exhibit grace in our relationships. That means we're nice to people who don't deserve it. We love people who don't love us back. That's grace. He wants us to learn to suffer the difficulties of life and patiently endure them. He wants us to do the right thing even when it's difficult or unpopular. He wants us to love our enemies and do good to those who despise us. He wants us to have humility. He wants us to provide the necessary emotional support for our families and for our friends, even if it means the sacrifice on our part. He wants us to model his patience with people. He wants us to prefer giving to getting things. These are the things that take place inside of us as we become more like Jesus. Because we are not that way normally. You know, even if you could do nothing, even if you were totally paralyzed, and you weren't able to do any quote-unquote work for God, it would not concern God as far as your value to Him. He's concerned about the person that you're becoming. 
That's what he's concerned about. I was going to have Jesse Girl come up and talk about someone who discipled her, but she had to be at the theater tonight for Viva. So she wrote this, and I'm going to read it to you. She says, uh, I mean, I have years of being discipled well, but a specific story... I mean, this past season with Lynn Pott has done a great job with me. It has looked like a pursuit of me via texting, via meeting, via checking in and paying attention and following up significant things in my weeks, like when my counseling appointments are, when my overfull days are, events in my family's life. She showered me with prayer, her own time and Her time with me was abundant. She followed up on things we prayed for. She asked me every time for evidence of my time with the Lord. What has the Lord said? How did I follow through? She thought of, made appointments with, and took me with her to others who could speak into my life. She does all this being incredibly safe. There's no judgments but admonishment. With long-suffering listening, paying attention and displaying and speaking of her own walk with the Lord. She spoke Scripture over everything and was careful to identify what, was her own, what were her own thoughts and what she thought were the Lord's. If you want to know what was going on with Jesse Girl's sabbatical, that's part of it. She was busy being discipled by someone older in the faith, old enough to be her mom. It was very, very, very good. (laughs) Oh, my. So, uh, let's wrap up here. Four points. Number one. Discipleship begins with love. It begins with love. It's the way babies are supposed to begin. Are you willing to initiate intentional time with somebody who needs discipling? If there's any hard conversations that need to be had, will you bring them up and have those too at the beginning because you love them? And are you bold enough to move the conversation towards spiritual things from just regular, everyday stuff? You see, that's where picking up the cross comes in. You might get rejected by moving the conversation onto a spiritual plane because they don't want to hear it. You're one of those Christians. Do you support Donald Trump? All those questions you've got to deal with. But discipleship begins with love for the person who needs Jesus or needs Jesus more deeply. Second, discipleship is maintained with love. Are you willing to keep calling somebody after months of seeing little fruit or little progress? 
What if the person you're discipling falls back into an old pattern of sin? How are you going to respond? For years, this is what I would tell the staff. I would say, listen, this is how it works to be a pastor at SCUM. I want you to love people the best you can. I want you to give them advice. I want you to warn them about what's going to happen if they keep living that way. And then I want you to watch them not take your advice. And after a while, their lives are going to fall apart. And they're going to be broken in pieces. And they're going to come to you. And when they do, you never, ever say, I told you so. You just help them pick up the pieces, put them back together, and keep walking toward Jesus. That's what you do. Discipleship is maintained with love. Number three, love takes the punches in discipleship. Love takes the punches in discipleship. Um, You know, it wasn't just that first night when Mary and I were looking at that pile of dirty dishes that we thought we'd been taken for granted. I kind of felt after a while that being taken for granted was part of my job description. I mean, I have been routinely criticized by people in the church, by the staff. In fact, I invited it. I would say, I would rather have you tell me to my face during a staff meeting than talk about it in the meeting after the meeting behind my back. We had an intern from England. His name was uh, Callum. And Callum's father was a... uh, a pastor in England. He was staying at our house, and so on the way back from the staff meeting one time, he tells me, I can't believe how they talk to you. Because people would never talk to my dad that way in England. <laughs> of course, the English are very, very polite. But I said, Callum, it's what they're thinking. I can handle it. Most of the time, I know I'm right. <laughs> they just got to catch up to it. But there are times when I'm wrong, and I got to listen then and humble myself in front of them. So you got to figure out, like, what are you going to say when somebody pushes back on you when you're trying to help them? When they say hurtful things. And how are you going to encourage a healthy give-and-take relationship? I mean, staff at SCUM keep their phones on all night long. Just in case somebody's going through a crisis. Just in case someone's OD'd. I mean... How many women here who have had trouble nursing their babies have called Jesse Girl or one of the staff women saying, I don't know what to do. My baby won't feed. I'm a terrible mother. My baby's going to die. I mean, (laughs) 
It's incredible. Talk to Fran. Oh my gosh. Fran was like crisis manager in residence on staff. (laughs) Holy cow. You know, I've talked about Gothic Sean in my book, and, um, and I remember Ben Mercer and Tracy Johnson keeping that guy in his apartment. He was getting drunk so often, and his apartment was such a mess. If they didn't go in there and clean it up, he would have been evicted. Time came where he was evicted. Nobody could do anything about it. He was wandering around. He went up to Boulder. And one night, about this time of year, he got drunk, sat down behind a dumpster in Boulder and froze to death. And I wasn't around. And part of me to this day wonders if I had been here, would he have survived? I mean, the guy was infuriating, but I loved him. If God hadn't told me one time, and this is one of those weird supernatural experiences, I was with him, he had just got done off a bender, uh, I had taken him out to lunch, he was so hungover, he was like lying on the... the uh, his side of the booth, talking to me from under the table. And um, he was in such bad shape, and I'm thinking, man, what am I going to do with you? And then it was like the Holy Spirit just broke into my brain. It was like an emergency announcement that all of a sudden ticker taped across my mind and it said Sean's not going to be able to handle growing old so I'm going to take him while he's still a young man and I thought whoa I can't believe it What do you do with that kind of information? I did everything I could to make it not happen. But it did. Taking the punches means you're going to make sacrifices and spending time and helping people when you don't want to help people. And you can't feel bitter and you can't feel prideful about the sacrifices you make for others. Because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we have to be able to say the same when we're discipling people. The last one. Love lets discipleship go on with others. Love lets discipleship Go on with others. 
Mark Deaver, in his book on discipling, from which I've taken a lot of this information, says, We need a love that humbles us enough to recognize that what they need is not us, but God. And that God can use us for a while, and then use someone else. This has been one of the hardest lessons for me to learn. We have literally ministered to thousands of young people over 19 years. I've given away over 16,000 stickers, folks. But it's so difficult for me because I, I love it when the flock is gathered together and we're all singing together. And we're all learning together. We're all eating together at the Greek town. Having a great time. It's like a picture of heaven for me. When people leave, it's hard. But the question is, do I think of myself as the Savior? Or is just one of the many instruments that the Savior has at His disposal to help His people get where they need to be. He is the great shepherd. I am an under-shepherd. If He wants to move His sheep from this flock to another flock, who am I to argue? They're like seeds blowing in the wind. That's how I have to look at it. Other churches in Denver are better because of the training that people received while they were here. For two years, five years, ten years, fifteen years. Am I willing to help people move on to other disciplers when the circumstances arise? Never forget one time, You guys got to put up with me telling stories because, like, I've only got this sermon and next week to tell these stories. Um, but uh, it was 2001, and uh, Jay Pathak and his crew from the Columbus Vineyard had just come to Denver to plant a church, a vineyard church up in Arvada. So you got all these, like, 14, 15 young, good looking, energetic, passionate, zealous Christian young people, and they decide to come to Scum of the Earth while they're waiting to start their own church. So Jay tells me. As he's sitting there telling me, I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing? If you're going to start a church, start a church. Go right ahead. But don't come here until you start it because I know what's going to happen. You are so appealing. People are going to get up and leave with you when you go to start your church. Like I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing here? Just then, the Holy Spirit breaks into my brain and says, I sent him here. You got a problem with that? Either get with the plan, Mike, or step out of the way. At that point, I went, Yes, Lord. I turned to Jay in that very first conversation, and I said, listen, 
when you're ready to go plant your church, I'm going to invite you up to give the sermon, and you can invite anybody from this building to come and help you start it up in Arvada. That's exactly what I did. And I lost some pretty good leaders that I cried about for at least a couple of years. But love lets discipleship go on with others. Ultimately, we must, we must turn people over to Jesus, who's the great discipler. And it is unto him we also give ourselves. Jesus is the great discipler. He is the one who makes us all disciples.